Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Everyone loves a good story, don't you? It doesn't matter if it's a well-written novel by an author like J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, Stephen King, or for the ladies in here, Nicholas Sparks. It doesn't matter if it's a movie uh, by some famous director or a heartwarming movie on Hallmark. We love to engross ourselves in a great story. We love to hear great stories. But why do we like stories so much? What is it about a story that, that, that draws us in and, and captivates our minds and our hearts? Have you ever thought about that? Why we read great stories and want to watch great stories in film or in the theater? Why is it that our kids want us to read bedtime stories to them before they go to the bed? Could it be that they just want to stay up? Or maybe it's the fact that they love the story itself. I was thinking about that this week. I found an article on Medium.com, an article that's entitled, The Science of Storytelling, Why We Love Stories. Joshua Vandebrake, the author of this article, says this about stories. He says, you have likely heard that storytelling is important for business, marketing, and for life in general. Likely you've heard that it's a powerful tool and it has a potential for massive lasting impact. He says, I'm going to show you the science behind why we love stories so much, what gives them their unique power, and how you can capitalize on it almost immediately. He quotes from Jonathan Gottschall, who wrote a book called The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us Human. Here, Jonathan says this, we are, as a species, addicted to story. Even when the body goes to sleep, the mind stays up all night telling itself stories. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you this, last night, in fact, I woke up this morning, so apparently last night I dreamed that I'm preaching apparently this morning, and I completely lost my train of thought and could not think at all, couldn't get myself going. I woke up with this horrendous fear of, oh gosh, I hope that's not reality. And so, uh, so far it's not reality, but it very well could be, who knows. Vanderbrake goes on to say this. There's a scientific explanation for our love of stories. When when we hear a story that resonates with us, our levels of a hormone called oxytocin increase. Maybe even as you watched that video just a moment ago, your oxytocin began to to pump into your arteries and you began to feel this feel good hormone. It boosts our feelings of things like trust, compassion, and empathy. It motivates us to work with others and positively influences our social behavior. Because of this, stories have a unique ability to build connections. Great brands know this, and they tap into its, its power source or power to, to, to build an engaged fan base. Looking even deeper, when we hear facts, it, it activates the data processing centers of our brains. But when we, when we hear great stories, it activates the sensory centers within our brains, thus leading to that oxytocin being pumped. He cites a Princeton University study where these neuroscience uh, in their research made these assessments. They found that in agreement with previous work, The story evoked highly reliable activity in many brain areas across all listeners. And then these scientists said this, Communication is a shared activity, resulting in a transfer of information across brains. The findings here show... The findings shown here indicate that during successful communication, speakers and listeners 
brains exhibit joint, temporarily coupled response patterns. Do you hear what they just said? The speakers and the listeners, both of their brains, exhibit joint, temporarily coupled response patterns. In other words, Vandenberg says this about it. These neuroscientists found that when listening to a well-told story, the exact same areas of the brain light up on an MRI in both the storyteller and the listener. So your brain, as the listener, mirrors the brain of the storyteller. You're becoming one. You're coupling yourselves together. So when you hear a well-told story, your brain reacts as if you are experiencing it yourself. Your, bl- your brain places you within the story. That's why we love novels that are well-written. That's why we love movies that are well-documented and played out, because we find ourselves in the story, not just standing outside of the story. We are engaged in it. Vandebrake goes on. He says, take a look at any Disney movie. Do you remember the, in The Lion King when Scar forces Mufasa off the cliff into the sea of trampling wildebeests, and, and then how his son Simba, he thinks it's his fault, and he and he uh, uh, exiles himself out of shame. Do you remember how you felt when you're watching that? Or um, in, in the first 10 minutes of the movie Up, or literally anything in The Fox and Hound, that will just rip your heart out there from the very beginning. He says, Humans are empathetic creatures. And as such, we respond to stories because they cultivate emotion and a sense of togetherness, therefore, a sense of connection. The simple personifying and humanizing of a cartoon character creates a connection with the audience. It causes the release of oxytocin and makes the audience place themselves into that character's story, connecting on a deeper level. And then he ends with this. Stories make us feel like part of something bigger than ourselves. I think the one thing that we love about stories more than anything else is because they give us a picture of something greater than ourselves, and we get to play a part in that. So physiologically, this is why we love stories. And I'm of the deep conviction that the reason we're drawn to good stories is because we are part of a grand story. And we're striving to understand the plot, the characters, and the purpose of this grand story. And so what is this story? The story is found in the Bible. The Bible is a compilation, if you read it from Genesis to Revelation, you'll see it's a compilation of many stories written by over or nearly 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 plus years, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, many different stories, but speaking of one grand story. You see, the meta-narrative of the Bible is the God of the Bible revealing himself and seeking to redeem mankind. That's what the Bible is about. It's about God revealing himself to us in redemption. And today we're beginning a new series that we're simply calling The Story. Over the next four Sundays, we're going to walk through the four scenes of this grand story. Creation, fall, the rescue, and the restoration. And then we're going to culminate... On Easter Sunday, as we've learned how the story answers the deep questions of our life and and connects us to the God who created us for himself, on Easter Sunday, we're going to culminate there with talking about our story and how God's story is supposed to become our story. So this morning, we're going to begin here with creation. Your Bibles are open to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to walk through these verses this morning. Look with me in verse 1. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, 
and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Verse 5, all the way through verse 30, we see the next five days of creation as God creates all that there is in the universe. Day 6, he creates the animal life, and that day, creating the animal life is, is culminated with the creation of humanity, the apex of God's creation. And there at the end of day 6, we see in verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. In these verses in chapter 1 as well as in chapter 2, we see the answers to the three great questions that every one of us have in life. As we ponder our own existence, we ask these questions in some form or fashion. We want to know, who am I? Who am I? Why, why am I here? Where did I come from? These are the three great questions of life. And Genesis answers these questions in these first couple chapters by introducing us to the God as creator and revealing his creation as that of being good. Genesis, the term itself, the word itself, simply means beginnings. The book of Genesis, then, is a book of beginnings. It's letting us know on the front end of the scriptures of what happened at the very beginning so that we can understand that first question, who am I, where did I come from? It introduces us to the beginning of time and space, and we learn here in these first two chapters how the universe came into existence. And in its first words, we learn how God's, the God of Israel can be known. He reveals himself in terms of the winds and wares of human life and history. Conceptually, this is how we as people orient ourselves to the world. We, we think of in, in terms of space and time. We locate ourselves in, in, in terms of beginnings and endings. In fact, our personal stories are also contoured by space. We always talk about where we are, where we've been, where we're going. Thus, as we see and identify ourselves by our finitude, we see that the infinite one condescends by announcing his presence in those same terms. He speaks to us in time and space. Did you know that God is not just merely a philosophical idea? The Bible declares him here and introduces us to him here at, here at the commitments of Scripture as a God who can be experienced personally. He's not just some idea that's aloof and, and out there in the pine sky. He is a God who is personally present. The commitment here of Scripture, he invites us to learn of him. And yet the full manifestation of who this God is and, and what this God is like is not fully uh, delivered and fully revealed into the world until the incarnate Word of God, the Son of God, comes, who is, as Hebrews 1.3 says, the exact imprint of His nature. And so God introduces Himself to us in terms of time and space through His creation. And today I want us to examine... This event here that's, that's recorded for us in these first two chapters of Genesis. And I want us to see how the, the story of the Bible is the story for our life. I want us to see in creation how we can answer these three questions and learn who God is. There's three things I want us to learn this morning from these verses. And that is this. First of all, in the beginning there was God. In the beginning there was God. 
We want to ask that question, who am I? And that other question, where did I come from? we got to first understand who God is. And we see here in the scriptures that in the beginning there was God. The Hebrew is this, Bereshach bara Elohim. In the beginning created God is what it literally says. The ESV translated, in the beginning God created. These opening words of Genesis, they form an independent clause. Hopefully you don't have one of those Bibles that, that puts it in a... a, a a, um, a subordinate clause because the Hebrew here has it as an independent clause, thus affirming that God was in the beginning before all things came into existence. And as we walk through this this morning, you're going to see that that is significant. If God is not before all that there was, then we have a different God than what the Bible is revealing. He is before all things and he was existing before anything came into existence. And so this pronouncement here marks an inauguration, but it also speaks of an anticipation of the end. See, anytime that we say there's a beginning, we all automatically understand that to have a beginning, you also have to have an end. And so as the Bible begins here, as it it opens up the scriptures to us and begins to give us a glimpse of who this God is as he reveals himself in time and space, it speaks of his beginning, but speaking of a beginning also speaks of an end. So there is what we might call an eschatological purpose that, in other words, there's going to come a culmination to this time and space as we know it today. It's occurrence of beginning suggests that it's been selected because of this association with an end. And so Moses here is the author. He at the outset is, is speaking to this eschatological purpose. And so we see here that we have a big G God, not a little G God. This is a God who is beyond time and space. He's going to exist beyond history itself. He is the sovereign one who knows and controls, as Isaiah 46.10 says, the beginning from the end. So let's look at this God. We know him here as Elohim as he's identified in verse 1. This term Elohim is exclusively used all throughout this first chapter into the first three verses of chapter 2. It's, it's not until chapter 2 verse 4 that the Hebrew word Yahweh is connected to Elohim where it says the Lord God. But it's used in connection or conjunction with Elohim. And, and so let's talk about this term. There's three uh, terms for deity that's in the Hebrew. El, Eloah, and Elohim. Of those three terms, we see that Elohim is used significantly more than the other two. In fact, it's used over 2,750 times in the Old Testament, speaking of God. It's a plural noun. And as a plural, it can refer to pagan deities, in which case it's, it's translated gods with a lower G, cap, lowercase g, or it can refer to the God of Israel. When it's used of the one God, the God of Israel, it occurs, commonly occurs in the Hebrew with singular verbs. And that's what's taking place in the text here. You've got, uh, you've got the word, the term Elohim, plural, being used with singular nouns. And most scholars will tell you this, that it's speaking of honor and it's speaking of majesty. Thus, grammatically, Moses here is making a point that the God who is going to be spoken of as the one creating all that there is, is different and distinct from anything else. He is the one true God who holds the beginning and the end. He is beyond space and time, but yet he reveals himself to us in space and time. This morning, you may need to set your plow a little bit deeper than normal for the next few minutes. I understand I'm giving you some, some weighty material. 
But this is important that we understand this about God. He's not just some philosophical idea. He is a God who is transcendent and yet a God who is personal. So God is majestic here. This plurality in this name, the name Elohim, it, obviously it's used of pagan gods just in a generic term. But as the writer here, Moses, is using it, it speaks of a God who is worthy of honor, worthy of majesty. Thus, it is the God of Israel. But we shouldn't absolutely read into it a Trinitarian perspective at the front end. Though I do believe as we in the church have 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 been given the full revelation of God, we can look back on this and see attributes that would lead us to believe that there is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one God. But for the sake this morning, this one verse, Moses is not saying this is a triune God, but it does allude to that in the Godhead for future purposes. I just say that so that you theological brains out there that want to wrestle with the Trinity, there you go. So what else do we learn about this God from this opening clause? In the beginning, there was God. Let me give you three things as quickly as I can. First of all, he is self-existent. You're going to have to write this in your bulletin. It's not in the bullet points. He is self-existent. Everything in the universe is dependent on someone or something. Think about that for, for an instance. It's just springtime, or at least it's supposed to feel like springtime, and things are beginning to grow. What do plants need to grow? What do plants need to exist? What do plants need to reproduce? They need sunlight. They need carbon dioxide. They need soil. They need water. They need some sort of nutrients from that soil. They are contingent upon something else. What do animals need to exist? They need food, they need water, they need air. I mean, think about us this morning. If we were to go just a few minutes without oxygen, every one of us would die. Think about the, the planet that we live on. If we were just slightly closer to the sun or slightly further away from the sun, everything on this planet would cease to exist. We are dependent upon someone and something else. Little babies that are born, if they don't have a mama or daddy to take care of them, they will die. If you were to walk out here this morning, you would turn around and look at that, uh, that, uh, that wreath on the left side door looking back in here, and you would find a little bitty nest with three or four eggs in it. If mama bird, which she might not be, we switched out the, the wreath yesterday, but put the nest back. So I don't know if she came back. I hope she came back. We tried as hard as we could. But if she doesn't come back and sit on those eggs, what happens to them? They die. We are all dependent on someone or something else. Not true with God. The, true, the one true God of the Bible is the one who existed prior to the beginning of everything else. So if God is the cause behind everything, then it stands to reason that his existence cannot be found from that which originates from him. He exists by his own power and by his own wisdom. He is self-existent. Secondly, I want you to see that he is self-sufficient. Self-existence would mean that God has no origin. He has no beginning. He has no one that says, all right, I have birthed you into existence. Self-sufficiency would mean that God has no needs and therefore depends on no one. So he is both self-existent and self-sufficient. But it's not true of anything else as I've just said. We are all dependent upon something else. It's not true of God. He needs nothing not even you or I, to exist. It amazes me in many religions of the world, particularly in the, in the Greek and Roman mythology type 
belief systems from yesteryear, yesteryear, yesteryear I guess, not yesterday, um, the gods that they believed in gained their power and abilities from the prayers of the people who prayed to them. That's not true of the God of the Bible. We can never seek God for the rest of our existence, and we will exist for all eternity in one place or another. You will exist in hell as a rebellious sinner who said no to God, or you exist forever in a place called heaven because you said yes to God through Jesus Christ. You will always exist. And so God's, God's sovereignty, God's goodness, God's ability is not contingent upon what you did with God. He will always be who he is. He is self-existent and self-sufficient. There's a third thing I want you to see about this God who existed for the beginning. That is, he is eternal. Again here, the mark of inauguration and the outset of these verses anticipates the end. And the fact that God initiated the beginning means that he will still exist after the end. Therefore, we can conclude this morning that God, as we can understand, is eternal. His eternality suggests two consequences for us. Here's the first one. God can be trusted to remain the same. I've mentioned this a few times in recent weeks, this concept, this theological concept of immutability. God never changes. The fact that he is eternal means that he will not change. We can trust that he is the same God who who has revealed himself in the same way in Genesis as he reveals himself to us today Thousands of years later, God will not change. And so as the Bible describes him as being holy, wise, gracious, just, loving, and everything else, we can believe him to be those things for us today. And then the second thing is that God is inescapable. He is beyond time and space, but he also exists within time and space. He's eternal. He is the God who is everywhere. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is eternal and thus inescapable. You cannot ignore him. You cannot move away from him. I I love in Psalm 139, which uh, in that video earlier alluded to it. I'm going to quote from it in a, a little bit. But in Psalm 139, I believe it talks about if I go to the depths of the sea, you're there. If I go to the heights of the heavens, you're there. I cannot escape you, God. That's the declaration of Psalm 139. God is inescapable. I think so many times when God is speaking to us and, and, and calling us to himself, we will do everything that we can to escape him. In fact, that's what's going to happen in the Revelation. You read the, 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 the periods of those bowls of wrath being poured out, and you see these apostate men and women. They're digging holes in the side of the hill, doing everything they can to escape who God is. Why do we try to do that? He is inescapable. We should thus just come to him with our sin and make the grand exchange and say, Lord God, I've sinned. I've rebelled against you. I am at your mercy. Would you forgive me and heal me and redeem me? So the story begins with God, who has always been He has always existed. He will always exist exactly as he is now. If it seems confusing, it's simply because what the Bible talks about here is beyond the capacity for our minds to fully comprehend. But he gives us this beautiful glimpse into who he is. Secondly, we learn this. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, there was God. Secondly, in the beginning, God created. The the, the Hebrew term is barah. It's translated, created the ESV in most, uh, most translations as well. It, it is consistently used in the Old Testament to, re, to reference a new activity. 
This term it contains the ideas both of complete effortlessness and in the Latin it's expressed this way, creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. And so we learn here in this term, bara, that God in effortless spoke and everything came into existence. And day one he says, let there be light, and there was light. He separated the light from the darkness. I don't comprehend that, right? I, I don't understand how you can say light exists and then separate it from darkness, but he did. My brain's not that big. I just take the Bible and believe what it says. Every single aspect of the universe, God spoke into existence. And it's not like he was up there struggling and straining and sweat was coming off his brow as he tries to make what he's making and he, and he messes up and he kind of throws that in the trash and starts over. No, God in complete and utter effortlessness and in complete and utter uh, glory and perfection says, let there be light and there was perfect light. He said, let there be man, and he took some, some dust, and he began to form it, and up came Adam, and he breathed life into him, and it was perfect. It was effortless. It's a new activity. God created. So believing God's word, the writer of Hebrews gave a precise explanation of what God has done. Hebrews 11.3 says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible, in other words, God who existed before space and time, he didn't take something that already existed and do what we would do. You see, when we create something, we don't create the thing that we use to create something. When we go and, and we make an Apple phone, we don't also create the silver and the aluminum and whatever else goes into an Apple phone. No, we're not like God. We have to take other materials and, and, and and, and tweak them and, and mold them and make them into something that we can use, that we create. But God says, let there be, and everything that was needed for that came into existence from nothing. That's that term, creatio ex nihilo. So Genesis 1 and 2 here describe God's creative activity. We see that in the beginning, God here speaks over these six days, and everything came into existence. By his command, the entire universe was created and filled with a dramatic display of galaxies and stars and planets, including our own planet, on which was this perfect garden paradise called Eden. Of all the beauty he created, the masterpiece was a man and a woman. God made Adam and Eve in his image to reflect him. Mean, sometimes we may wonder, why would the Bible put such an emphasis on humanity being the apex of God's creation? Because if you've been to places like the Grand Canyon, absolutely stunning. If you've stood before the Teton Mountains in Wyoming, absolutely stunning. If you've stood on the banks of the Mediterranean Sea in Barcelona and you look out over that, that beautiful surf out there and you see the mountains behind you, you think, this is almost like paradise. One of my favorite places in all of the world is southwest Uganda. There on the Rift Valley where we've stayed a few times, it's incredible. You look down below you, I mean, we're staying in this, this lodge that these huts are on the cliffs, and you look down below you and you'll see elephants running back and forth. You'll see other type of animals. It's just spectacular. And you see the, these people who are living in these little bitty grass huts, and, and, and you watch them go about their day because you're so far above, up above them and you almost feel like you're God looking down on them. It's a little like peeping Tom, but it's just amazing. You look out over the valley, you can see mile, probably 30 to 50 miles across and it's just absolutely stunning. Sometimes we wonder, why would God speak of us being the apex when his creation itself is beautiful? The reason we're the apex is because we're the only one that bear his image. 
We're the only one that reflect a picture of who he is. We reflect his glory. See, Adam and Eve were created with this grand purpose of worshiping him by loving God, by serving God, by enjoying a relationship with God. And this world was not an accident. God purposely created all that there is, including you and me. It was his intention to do this, as Psalm 139 verse 14 tells us. Therefore, you and I have purpose, and we have value because of that. And as humans, we've been created in the image of God to reflect his glory and his beauty to this world. Do you see how the story here finds its genesis? Our story finds its genesis in God's story. In the beginning, God created. Thirdly, in the beginning, creation was good. Verse 31 that I read earlier says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. By God's design, all of creation What God is saying here, what Moses is saying here in his word is that in God's design, all of creation was in harmony. It was doing exactly as it was supposed to. As God created it to work, it was working. The breath of life was in man. Adam and Eve were given a dimension of life that was different and unique from everything else. Look there in chapter 2 if you've got your Bibles. If you don't know this, Genesis 1 is sort of a, a broad look at the creation account, right? It's really large scope. It's wide. It tells you this is what happened day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6. And then we see going into chapter 1 that day 7 is a day of rest. It's a Sabbath rest. And you also see those days that, that like day 1 corresponds, I believe, to day Four and day two corresponds to day five, and day three corresponds to day six, and and the things that they needed. In other words, you need plants for animals to exist. That type of correlation. So you get this broad picture in the in the first chapter of Genesis. You come to chapter two, and it's another creation account, but it's the same creation account. It's just a little bit more fine tuned. What Moses is doing here in chapter two, he's saying, "All right, on day six, this is how it played out." Right. He created the animals. He formed them of dust, like G- Genesis 1 tells us. And, and, and then he set them out there. But then he formed Adam and Eve, and he formed them of dust, but he does something different. He breathes life into Adam and Eve. And so they have a different and unique humanity, as verse 7. Forms them of dust of the ground, breathes into their nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Verses 15 and 19, we see that they're privileged to rule over creation as God's steward. They enjoy this personal relationship with God who would, as chapter 3, verse 8, would lead us to believe that God would come and walk in the garden with them. There was this intimacy there between God, man, and woman. Chapter 2, verse 9, we see that it's a nourishing life. The creation was nourishing. It was life-giving They had trees to eat. They had everything they needed. It was good for food, the Bible says. Chapter 2, verse 18 and verse 12, we see this relational nature. But also in verse 12, we see that that, the creation was enriching. There was gold. There was everything they needed. There was resources. Everything was beautiful. It was wonderful. It was good. It was good. How many times can we look at the creation that we live in today and say, you know, it's good. It's good. Sure, we wake up on a beautiful morning like this and we see the sunshine and we say, man, it's beautiful. We feel the warmth of the sunshine and we think, man, this is beautiful. But you turn your TVs on and you see that someone was murdered last night in downtown Richmond. 
get that phone call that someone died. You, you get on social media and you see that some tragedy happened in someone's life and you look at the things in your life and the things going on in this world and you say, it's not good. Something is wrong here. But in the very beginning, we see that the story God is writing, it was good. It was good. In this time, there was no pain. There was no suffering. There was no sickness. There was no death. There was only complete love. There was complete acceptance. There was intimacy between God and man. There was intimacy between Adam and Eve. And there was intimacy and relationship and harmony and goodness between everything and creation. Everything that God created was good. Reminds me of what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. For by him, speaking of Jesus here, he's arguing for the deity of Christ. He says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Siri was trying to preach for me. I don't even know where I was. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That's the phrase I love out of that verse more than the rest, though it's all awesome. But we are created by God and for God. That means that you are good in God's creation and God's purpose for you. You were created for him. And your creation was different than the rest of his work. He breathed a special life into you and to me. Think about that. If you read the creation account here, I'm just going to press this just for a moment because I, I need to land the plane. But when God formed the animals, you know, sometimes we are guilty as humans today in our culture of worshiping the created versus the creator, right? And, and Please don't paint me as an animal rights hater or, uh, or anything like that. Or you hate the world. You just throw your litter on the ground. I, it's not the case at all. I throw my trash in the trash. I, I, I take care of animals. I'm a conservationist. Uh, I'm all of those things. I, I respect the creation that God's given us. But when it comes down to what has greater dignity and significance, a human or an animal, the human trumps it every time. Right? So when we begin to talk about social issues today that are, that are killing us as a nation, when we begin to, to put on the same level whether or not we're going to treat animal rights as the same as the rights of an unborn child, the unborn child trumps every time. Why? Because they're made in the image of God, right? That was a half-hearted applause, even though I wasn't trying for it. But here's the difference. This is why humans and animals are different. When God forms the animals, it says he just took the dust and formed them. But what does it say when he took the dust and formed Adam? He breathed life into him. You say, well, he probably breathed life into the dogs because they, they have life, or they have breath too, right? I think it's different than that. I personally think it's different than that. I think it speaks of a spiritual life, not just a physical life. Animal life, they obviously have a body. And they have a soul. They have an emotional component. You know, you, you, you poke the bear too long and the bear's going to attack you. There's emotions there. But the animal doesn't have a spirit, right? I, I, I hate to inform you this morning, but I don't think your, your, your animals that you love so much are going to be in heaven with you because they don't have a spirit, right? But a human does. There's this component that was created within us to relate to God on a level that the animals cannot do. And I believe that's what Moses is speaking of here as he accounts this sixth day of creation, that God breathed life into him. Remember what God told Adam 
about that tree to not eat from, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He says, if you eat of it, you will die. But we know that they didn't physically die immediately, though it was initiated, but immediately something died within them. Spiritually, they were cut off from God. We know that, and we're getting into next week's message here. But we know that because when God came walking in the garden in Genesis 3, 8, what were they doing? They were hiding from him. They weren't running to him like they used to. So there's something different, significantly different about humans or between humans and animals. We were created by God and for God. It doesn't say of that, say that of anything else in creation. He breathed a special life into us. Thus, he enjoys a special relationship with us, and God has worked a special redemption for us that no other aspect of creation experiences. Think about what I just said there. God has done something for you and I as human beings that he has not done for any other aspect of creation. In fact, the redemption of creation itself rests in what he has done for us. The Bible talks about how the, 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 the world longs with groans for a redemption. But that redemption is found in what he did for humanity. Jesus didn't die on the cross for a third of the angels who rebelled with Lucifer. Jesus didn't die on a cross to redeem the sins of animal life or plant life or anything else like that. God has only done that for human beings. And so there's something incredibly uh, distinct about us because we are created in the image of God, in this creation that was good. So let us see this morning, let us understand today that in the beginning creation was good. Think about this, because God is good. God is good, thus his creation was good. And I believe it's safe to say that today it is hard for us to grasp this goodness. I mean, our world is filled with cancer. Every time you turn around, there's a new diagnosis of cancer. Our world is filled with disease. Heard on the radio last week that measles is making a comeback in our nation. Our world is filled with abuse. Abuse upon abuse upon abuse. All kinds of abuse we see in our world today. It's, it's filled with fraud and shame. But the beauty of 225 is a foreign thing to our hearts where it says that Adam and Eve were naked and felt no shame. They were unashamed in their life. Why? Because they had no concept of sin. They'd never sinned in their life. They enjoyed the goodness of God and what they were created to experience. That's not so with us. Our headlines are much different today than that of Eden's. Today, our headlines are filled with infidelity. Our headlines are filled with exploitation. Our, feel, our headlines are filled with scandal upon scandal. We look around at our world and we see nothing but brokenness. But think about what brokenness does to us, or for us, I should say. Brokenness leads us back to saying, hey, something's not right here. There's something missing in my life. There's something missing in my home. There's something missing in my family. There's something missing in my community. And it ought to drive us to seek out that which is missing in us and among us. The brokenness causes us to long for something new, for something better, for something good. It causes us to long for the goodness we see here in creation. And we long for the life that was breathed into Adam. We long to be released from the shame that consumes our lives. Into this brokenness, God here inserts good news for us. And that's what this whole story is about. The story begins with creation when God says it is good and he dwells among us. It rapidly takes a turn. But God begins, even in that rebellion, to bring back the goodness and the 
majesty and the glory that was lost in the fall. This good news that he interjects is that we were made by God and for God. The good news is that God loves us even in our brokenness and our shame. The good news is that he loves us so much that he would do for us what we could not do for ourselves, that he would send his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin on the cross, taking it upon himself so that we could be forgiven of that debt. It's the innocent dying for the guilty. That's the good news. The Bible says that if you will place your faith in him, if you will turn from your sin, then you can experience new life, the good life that you were created for in Jesus Christ. And you can experience that good life even today. This is God's story. This is the grand story. And this is what God's story wants to do in your life. Let's pray. Father, this morning, thank you so much for this story. The story could have ended in just one scene. It could, have, it could have began with creation and then immediately there's the fall and then there's no more story. But Lord, you have picked up the story and continued to write it. And today we stand here thousands of years after this creation account and we can still experience the goodness of God. Even in a broken, shameful world, we can experience your goodness We can experience your personal relationship. We can experience forgiveness of sins. Lord, we can be restored and redeemed. And Lord, we can have heaven waiting us because of what Jesus did for us. Thank you for this story. Today, many in this room have been written into this story of redemption. God, you called our name and we answered. You forgave our sins. Today you are sanctifying us, making us more and more like Jesus. Are we perfect? No. But are we on our way? Absolutely. And we know that heaven awaits us when we die. We know that Jesus, you will return one day. We know that the sin in this world will be put to an end. We know that the enemy that we war against and the system that he set up will be put to an end. God, we know the end of this story. and We we are thankful that we are in the story. This morning across this room, there were probably some the only part of the story that they play today is the fact that they have rebelled against your good creation like Adam they carry that sinful nature like Adam they chose to do that which you have commanded them not to do and they've been living and walking in rebellion from the very beginning of their life today the greatest need in their life is to be grafted into the story of redemption they need the blood that was shed the blood that we sing about earlier the blood of Jesus, they need it to be applied to their life for the forgiveness of their sins. Father, I pray that in this next few moments, as we move into a time of response, that that would be their response. A confessional response where they say, I have sinned against you, and I ask that you forgive me of that sin. Become my Lord, become my Savior. God, salvation is not something that's complex. It's not something that You have to have some sort of Ph.D. in biblical history to understand, God, salvation is simple. A child can faith into you. I pray that you would lead those who need Jesus today to do that. God, for us Christians who perhaps have been walking at a guilty distance, I pray that we'd come home this morning. I pray that we would, afresh and anew, understand what you've done for us, how much you love us today.
would you encourage us? Help us to live holier lives because of this incredible story that you're writing. Lord, we love you, and we thank you more than anything that you love us. And as we respond this morning, may we do so in faith and in repentance. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.